Well, my life has been bookended by Anderson University. My dad was a professor here when I was growing up. Uh, we lived a block and a half from campus and came to school here as a student. John Pistol's love for and loyalty to Anderson, Indiana, and the small private liberal arts university there have had a profound impact on him. After graduating from Anderson, John went on to earn a law degree, but eventually decided his calling was public service. First stop, the FBI, where he worked his way up to deputy director. Then the world changed. Pistol became a key figure in U.S. counterintelligence and security after 9-11, eventually becoming the head of TSA. In fact, you can thank him the next time you go through TSA PreCheck. Learn more about Anderson University President John Pistol, his unique career path, the mark he's left on security in the United States, and how he's come full circle back home in Indiana on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Well, you could describe John Pistol as a one-of-a-kind university president. He's running the school where his dad taught and he graduated from, later serving as a key player in strengthening security in the United States following 9-11. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome you to the podcast this week, the president, the fifth president at Anderson University, John Pistol. And uh, John, really great to have you on the podcast. Great to great to hear your voice sure. again. Hey, Gary, thanks so much for having me and, and excited to talk about all the great things going on at Anderson University. Tons of great things going on uh, at Anderson and certainly uh, even more so since you arrived uh, nine years ago, I guess, uh, there right. on campus. Uh, your story is one that uh, I think is pretty amazing. Folks familiar with Anderson University likely know. Uh, some Others, many others maybe wouldn't know that you were the former administrator of the Transportation Safety Administration, the TSA, former deputy director of the FBI, and served in these very important roles at a critical time for our country. Uh, so certainly want to uh, talk about that. Lots of different places we could start, but let's let's start with Anderson University because your ties to Anderson are extremely strong. Uh, in fact, you met your wife there, right? I did. Thanks be to God. We met as freshmen uh, a number of years ago and uh, got married uh, five years later. Um, and then, yeah, this summer we're coming up on our 45th anniversary, which I don't know how that's possible since <laughs> I married such a young person and her also. But yeah, it's been a great place. So just a little bit of family history, if I could just share that with you. My dad was a pastor of a Church of God congregation out east in, in, in Baltimore and of course, Anderson at that time, Bible Training School was founded in 1917 by the Church of God, which was headquartered in Anderson uh, back from the early 1900s. And so my dad got a call to come to work in the administrative offices of the church. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I accepted a teaching position at the college and then at the, the seminary. So we have school theology. And so he applied his teaching, preaching uh, background experience to helping new students learn about what it means to be a pastor in the church. And so my parents both went there actually during the war years in the early 40s. And then 
all three of my older siblings uh, went to Anderson. And then, so I was convinced I was going to go elsewhere because, of course, I had to be <laughs> right. different from the rest of my family. But uh, I think God had some other plans. And uh, I went to Anderson High School and on just a spectacular basketball team. I wasn't a, a star or anything, but played with some really good guys. And we were 25 and three my uh, junior year. And then when 26 and one, favored to win the state championship my senior year. That didn't happen. And I had a, I was in a car accident in September of my senior year, ended up with a broken neck. Oh, I just give God thanks that uh, not only was I saved physically, that he gave me a second chance, but I felt like spiritually also, because I'd gone off on my wayward son type of thing, as many yeah. people do. And so I ended up going to Anderson because I got a break on tuition because my dad wow. taught there. And, yeah. and, and because of that full recovery that, that God afforded me physically, I was able to play four years of uh, tennis and basketball. So it was a, a great experience being in school. And then, of course, as you mentioned, meeting Kathy, my wife. And yeah. She's from the D.C. area. And so it's a great intercultural exchange for us. So. That's good. That's good. Well, talk about, you know, for a second, if you will, those basketball teams. Anderson, of course, was such a rich, amazing basketball tradition that yeah. you you were part of that, right? Yeah, and, and that's a good way to describe it. I was part of it. Uh, so my senior year, again, when I wasn't playing, but uh, Mr. Basketball, co-Mr. Basketball that year, Roy Taylor, 1974, yeah. Yeah. along with the All-State Center, Tony Marshall. And, of course, all your listeners who've been around any while will, will recognize another member of that Indiana High School All-Star Basketball team was some kid from Spring Valley down in French Lick. Uh, yeah, who was that? 33? Yeah, who yeah. that? But he wasn't, you know, Larry Bird was not Mr. Basketball. Yeah. And it's just, and he went to, to uh, or co-Mr. Basketball. So anyway, yeah, so I learned a lot. Ray Estes, great coach, you know, disciplinarian that encouraged teamwork. And obviously, so a lot of life lessons in terms of hard work and giving it your best and being part of a team. And that's yeah. a lot of life lessons I've learned in being, in my work uh, in the government for almost 31 years and then nine years here at Anderson University. And you had a great four years playing sports academically and otherwise. So Anderson University was a great fit for you. It was very good. I really matured in ways that uh, I needed to to really set the stage for my future career. So, yeah. yeah. As you look at that, you graduated from Anderson, went on to get your law degree, uh, I think mm -hmm. at McKinney, uh, IU McKinney, right. and then practiced, I think, for a couple of years. Then you yeah. said, as I as I read it, you set on this path with the FBI. Is that, is right. that what I'm right. talk about that and how that began? Yeah. So I was practicing in a, in a firm uh, in Anderson, a law firm with uh, four other attorneys, all Anderson University ties and Church of God ties, actually. So a lot of synergy. Uh, but Gary, after my first year, I thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this for the next 40 years. So I prayed about it, talked to my wife about it. Um, and so we decided to look at other options, including looking at law firms in D.C., because she was in you know, her family's in the D.C. area. Um, looking at that, uh, of course, that meant me taking another bar exam, which I was not all, all that excited about. <laughs> And so two of my, my two older sisters both had friends whose uh, spouses were attorneys who had become FBI agents. So I thought, yeah, yeah boy, I'd read a Robert Loveland, a Loveland novel. Not that. that sounds kind of exciting, different change. <laughs> yeah. So I talked to them and yeah, they're very encouraging. He said, your legal background will help you greatly um, in your work. 
you've been involved in sports. There's a physical fitness requirement. And so, yeah, you would, they encouraged me to apply. So I did. And uh, two things I learned from that year long application process during uh, which time twice the FBI told me they would not be able to hire me because of issues they'd found in my background. Well, one was a broken neck from a car accident uh, senior year, which I'd put on my uh, my application. And another one was because they found out that as I put on my application, my mother-in-law was born in Egypt. And literally they wanted to know what my mother-in-law was was doing in Egypt uh, when she was born. And I wanted to say, well, she wanted to be close to her mom when she's born. But I thought, you know, this is a future employer. So that's kind of a snappy answer. So I realized they were looking the fact that she was a U.S. citizen. Her, her parents were missionaries to Egypt and all that. So so it took a while, but cleared up. So I tell students and others who are interested in uh, working for the government, particularly FBI or other agencies or big companies, be patient, but be persistent. And yeah. so keep after it. So you finally got that 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 opportunity at the uh, at the yeah. FBI. What was that? Uh, what was your first job? Yeah. So, of course, all new FBI employees uh, go through the FBI Academy and particularly FBI agents where there's three components is the classroom, of course, which the, the legal background was very helpful. So no issues there. Physical fitness. You have uh, three mandatory tests and five different events you have to qualify for. No problem there. And then firearms, you have to qualify. It, it, Gary, one of the interesting things that they, they found about me is even though my last name is Pistol, I'd never fired a gun before getting to the FBI Academy. And and they what I found out is they actually like that because they don't people don't have bad habits. I didn't have any habits. Uh-huh. So I was able to qualify and then I got signed uh to the Minneapolis office of the FBI and spent uh, two and a half winters there, got there in January. <laughs> And uh, and then and then got transferred to the New York office um, and assigned to a joint organized crime task force with NYPD detectives. You talk about a target rich environment investigating yeah. a mob back in the eighties. Wow, <laughs> great great work. So yeah, well you know inter- interesting, and I, I'm sure you know Jeff Mearns at Ball State. Oh, yeah. Sure, prosecutor extraordinaire. Right, and and was involved with with the mob and some of that stuff out of New York. Yeah. So as you got into it, what would you, you, you obviously liked it. Uh, what was it that, intru- that, that really got you fired up about FBI work? Yeah, Gary, I think it was the fact that I, I had an opportunity to help others who had been victims of serious crimes or their family members. If, you know, some of the, the matters I investigated in New York City particularly were, were murders um, of people who were going along with the mob. And so trying to bring justice in a way, you know, to their families, to the victims of crimes. And then feeling like I, as I got promoted in ways that I never anticipated or, or necessarily even sought, uh, I saw an opportunity to make a difference in an organization that was so good in so many ways. But as any uh, organization, company, business, there's always room for improvement. And I felt like I was learning enough and had enough practical experience to say, yes, what about, you're just asking those good questions. Well, why do we do this? Or why are we doing that? So eventually uh, I, you know, I got promoted um, several more times and then 9-11 happened. And then I was asked to come into the newly expanded counterterrorism division uh, after 9-11. What was that like? I mean, from what you can uh, just, just try to, I'm sure it's it's hard to, to put in perspective, but what was that like? 
the, you know, the one word that comes to mind first, Gary, is, is intense. So I was getting up, you know, I mean, 4, 4.15 every morning to get into the office, uh, downtown D.C., uh, the FBI headquarters there on 10th and Pennsylvania, um, and going to uh, get doing briefings of o- all the overnight threat information, sorting that out to do a briefing for the head of national security, which was my boss, uh, and then a little bit later, briefing for the FBI director. Because then after our briefing with the FBI director, the attorney general, deputy attorney general, and chief of staff would come over from the Department of Justice, which is across the street uh, from FBI headquarters, and we'd do a briefing for the attorney general. And then the, the attorney general and the director would go down the street six blocks to brief President Bush and Vice President Cheney and, and uh, Andy Card, chief of staff, and CIA, George Tenet was there. So Oval Office briefings with eight or nine people. And so that was uh, intense because, yeah. you know, the whole mood after 9-11 uh, was that this was probably the first wave of attacks. Yeah. And so what can we do to make sure that second wave wave never happens? Yeah. And so that was the intensity of it. So it wasn't a, somebody once asked, well, was it a nine to five job? Oh, oh boy. Yeah, Man, not, yeah, that it, was uh, that was the warm up. Yeah, yeah, so, and, and, and you know that intensity—that's probably a good word because I have, have heard on a number of occasions, you know, people talking about how you know the the terrorists, you know, can you know try a bunch of a different times. They just have to succeed one time, and exactly. you know the the pressure, the intensity to try to yeah. thwart that and prevent has to be just uh, amazing. Well, and the sense of, of duty and the sense of service that I saw the men and women of the FBI and later at TSA, uh, t- that, you know, uh, that TSA was not on my watch because TSA, of course, was created after 9-11. Right. And so it's just that sense of the men and women of the FBI and all the other agencies, the U.S. intelligence community, CIA, NSA, all those good people who served. We're all committed to the same singular mission of preventing the next attack. And so yeah. it was a real sense of mission and don't miss anything. Yeah. Well, well you were on, obviously on a path because you ultimately became deputy director, right? Of yeah. the FBI. So the number two position there. Yeah, right. So uh, just for some context, the FBI has about 37,000 employees and the FBI director is the only employee, if you will, who is uh, nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. So I, by the time I became the deputy director in 2004, I was the senior employee, like the chief operating officer, yeah, with oversight for all the investigations, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, you know, the spying, yeah. and then all the t- traditional criminal investigations that many people think about if they watch uh, all the FBI shows. Yeah. So, what, what, what was... Um... In terms of the things that you brought to the table, I mean, you obviously you had your law background and just your your experiences. What was the most I I, I mean, I can't imagine the enormity of of the task, the enormity of the responsibility. What was the uh, what things that you brought to the table were most beneficial to you to handle that and to handle the pressure, the pressure of the job? Well, yeah, thanks, Gary. It's what people told me after we've been working together for a while is. Um, yeah, we do these 360 reviews or we did, you know, about, so what, what did you 
like or what would you say about your boss or vice versa? And and the three things they identified in me, um, which I was greatly complimented by, is uh, is hard work, professionalism, and integrity. So those are things that that I tried to to do every day, and then to emulate what I saw in others. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, and so that was those three things. And there's uh, as I tell students and others who are interested in career counseling, I just I say there's no substitute. You either work hard or you don't. You either do it with professionalism or you don't. And yeah. you either do not only your work but your life with integrity or you don't. So well, yeah. and, and those three things obviously are critically important. But I would think that in a in a position like that, the ability to assess information and make decisions, <laughs> you know, right. uh, ha- have to be right up there. And that has to be a, a, pr- a pretty tough thing that not a lot of people probably are cut out for. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think you're exactly right. Critical thinking skills yeah. have to take yeah. a complex set of facts, information, maybe misinformation mm-hmm. or even disinformation. Right. And how do you sort all that out? The The British their British Security Service, MI5, and British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, people probably heard about, talk about the, the rich tapestry of information that is out there. And how do we sort through that tapestry to say, what is what are the bad guys plotting, planning, and how do we best disrupt that? While protecting civil rights and civil liberties and privacy. Yeah, and which that was a big part, right, of what you dealt with yeah. at, at TSA, probably, right? Yeah, exactly. And so when I got, when they asked me to, uh, I'd been deputy director for over five and a half years. I got a call one day asking, there's a secretary of Homeland Security who talked to the president and said uh, uh, she would like me to consider putting my name in to be nominated by the president uh, to be the head of the Transportation Security Administration, TSA. And I thought to myself, because I'd been testified a number of times in my FBI role, I thought, well, now there's a thankless job. What moron would want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And and then, Gary, I found out that there had not been one, but two prior nominees who had not made it through the Senate confirmation process. Wow. Yeah. So that's a real process. And then what I realized is they were looking for somebody who had credibility on the Hill um, Mm -hmm. because I'd been up there so much and they knew they could rely on me, uh, that they could get through. And then the senators were interested in that because- I thought they were just really supportive. Well, they wanted somebody who's appointed by the president that they can complain to about how broken TSA was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's DC for you. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that experience and, and just the creation of TSA, which obviously still exists today. And, yeah. uh, but in the early uh, days, you know, it was a kind of a, I, I assume kind of a, it was a new thing, a work in progress hadn't been oh, done yeah. before. Right. Oh, very much so. So, of course, it was created uh, in, in in November of 2001 after 9-11. And the airlines uh, did the security screening before that. And so, yeah, 50,000 people were hired in the first year after TSA was created. And so when I got there, almost oh, eight and a half, nine years later, the whole approach was one size fits all. That anybody, including Gary Dick or John Pistol or... Jeff Marins or any, you know, anybody could be a terrorist. And so we have to treat them as such. Yep. You know, pat downs of the elderly, the grandmothers, the two-year-old children. And so, so when I got there, I had a leadership meeting and I asked the question, 
why is it that for over 26 years, I've been able to get on a plane with a deadly weapon? Well, of course, their answer was, well, of course, you're an FBI agent, so you're authorized. Right. Well, could I be considered a known and trusted traveler? Well, sure. So couldn't we do that? There's nearly 2 million people with uh, security clearances in the U.S. government and then uh, many more contractors. Aren't they known and trusted with our nation's secrets? Uh, so can't we we ask people to volunteer their information about them, themselves and create a trusted travel program? So for, for your listeners who like TSA PreCheck or go through that, I'll take full credit with a great team for setting, Good. The, Good. setting that up. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, one of them. We team. love that. that yeah, that well, yeah. And anybody with complaints, I'll give you the name of uh, Dave Pekoski, <laughs> the administrator, who uh, <laughs> the complaint department. But uh, yeah, so it was a really good team, a leadership team, and then the workforce of over 60,000 people who are just hungry, I think, to have a better image. I, I did a little bit of research uh, when I was going through the confirmation process. And I found that out of 234 agencies and departments of the federal government, TSA was number three uh, in customer satisfaction wow. from the bottom. Number oh, three from, from the okay. bottom. Uh, yeah. uh, from the bottom, wow. Well, no, 231, so nobody liked TSA. And so by introducing TSA PreCheck, and that was part of what we call risk-based security. Um, and so as uh, part of that was to put in place a number of different programs, treating our World War II veterans who are going back to the memorial in D.C., treating them with respect, and just a whole number of things. So, yeah. Well, how, as you look at TSA, as it's evolved in, uh, over time, your, your, your take at, at the, the current state of TSA, yeah. Yeah. So my two uh, successors have both done a great job. Dave Pekoski, who was a vice admiral of the Coast Guard, um, has now become uh, – the longest serving TSA administrator. I had that record for, well, I was four and a half years and he just, he passed that last year. He's done a lot of good things for uh, enhancing the workforce by getting pay parity with the rest of the federal government, which they didn't, I wasn't able to do that. Uh, Congress and OMB just weren't, didn't have that appetite and really professionalizing. So the attrition rate has gone way down. It's, I think I just saw it's at 88%, uh, which is by far the highest in the 22, almost 23 years of TSA's history. So that's an important thing. You get continuity. People know what they're doing and know how to deal with passengers in respectful, professional ways and still doing the, the world's best security based on both the personal interaction and then just outstanding um, technology screening, both for identity yeah. and for bags and and handbags and things. So, yeah. do, do you? I'd be interested. And I don't want you to uh, delve into you know anything political. But as as we're talking and your your background and what you were so involved with for so many years, as you look at what's going on at our borders and the, mm. the concern about what could happen ultimately when it comes to terrorism and folks coming in the country, you know, where, where people are, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people are concerned about it, obviously. Your your take. What as you look at that yeah. from a security standpoint. Yeah, and, and I'll I'll limit my comments so it's not a yeah. political statement because, you know, for my entire FBI career, I had to be apolitical yep. in terms of equal opportunity investigator, Republican, Democrat, independent. <laughs> Didn't really matter. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there is there is a concern that terrorists might exploit uh, the, for example, the southwest border. But at least in my time, there's what's known as special interest aliens, and there's 
there's a number, I mean, tens of thousands, maybe 100, 150,000 who have come into the country, those who have been identified. What's the your listeners probably don't know is that if they have been identified, then, and they are in the country somehow, and that's the question, how do we know that? Then there's a very high likelihood that the FBI has an open investigation on that person, at least during my tenure. So it's not like they're just in the wind when yeah. they come across, you know, in the Eagle Pass, Texas, and now who knows where they are. Uh, there may be some like that, and we don't know. I think the, the key issue is, uh, at least during my time as the deputy director and the head of national security and at TSA, that there were literally a handful of people who were special interest aliens uh, who were actual uh, on the terrorist watch list. So they evaded that by sneaking across the border. But those the individuals who were on the terrorist watch list were actually financiers. For example, for Hezbollah or Hamas, they were coming to the U.S. to raise money to buy material support for terrorist organizations, which, of course, is against the law. But they weren't bomb throwers. They weren't assassins. And I think some of the politics has missed some of that to say, well, yeah, we're letting terror. This administration or that administration is letting terrorists in the country. And that wasn't my experience. If it's going on now, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. After the break, I want to talk about uh, a lot of the great things going on at Anderson University. Yes. Uh, before we get there, I want to ask you, because you, as I did s- some research, got a call, I think, from the Trump administration, right, to possibly to, to interview to be uh, the FBI director uh, in the wake of J- J- Jim Comey's firing. What was that? What was that? Talk about that briefly, if you could. What, what you can tell us about that? Yeah, so that was something that was uh, Jim Comey, the FBI director, was fired by uh, President Trump, I think it was in early May of 2017, so what, four or five months into President Trump's term. Uh, so, oh, a couple weeks later, uh, I got a call about whether I would be interested and open to interviewing with the attorney general at the time to see whether I might be a candidate uh, to be the nominated uh, to be the FBI director. And so I thought about it, prayed about it. And my concern, Gary, was that that if, I'll just be frank, if there was a somebody that the president was uh, putting in as a political crony, um, there's a term of art called political hack in Washington. <laughs> right. My concern was because I had invested so much time and energy um, and passion into the FBI that I I felt like that would not be a good thing. And so, yeah, I wasn't wild about the idea because if he fired Jim Comey, who uh, I didn't agree with everything Jim did, but I thought he did a lot of really yeah. good things. I thought, well, that's not a very good uh, situation to, to follow. So anyway, I went in, met with Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, and the Deputy Attorney General and Chief of Staff. And and um, we had a very frank conversation. And then about a week later, I uh, got a call from the White House saying that President Trump would like to meet with me the next day. And so um, I told him I had a meeting in Chicago that day. So how about later in the week? And there's this long pause. Like, I said, okay, I'll see if I can rearrange my schedule. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, well, how'd that go? How'd that meeting go? Yeah, it was fascinating and a little bit of context. So when I got to the waiting room in the West Wing of the White House, 
there before you go into the Oval Office, Chris Ray, who is in the FBI director, was sitting there. Chris and I had worked together several years when he's in the Deputy Attorney General's office, working for Gen- Attorney General Ashcroft. And so I was greatly relieved when I saw him because the news had broken that day that President Trump was interviewing two finalists for the FBI director job. And so when I saw him, I felt greatly relieved because I, I felt yeah. like, okay, the FBI would be in good hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so after he, he went in and he interviewed and then it was my turn and had a very candid conversation with the, uh, with the president and vice president Pence, of course, and the, uh, white house council and uh, a couple other. And so good conversation. And, um, yeah, I won't go into much more detail, but just it was, I felt like I stated where I was and, and he, he seemed very much interested. And so he asked me to think about it and uh, to let him know. And then about a week later, um, he tweeted that uh, he was selecting Chris Ray. And so I was uh, greatly relieved. Uh, 99.5% of me, the competitive part of me is like, well, shoot, right, my name right. was in it there. So, uh, and I told him, look, I'd made a five-year commitment to Anderson University as a president, and I'd only been there two years. And I just, I just wasn't wild about that thought of going into that situation. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, folks at Anderson University, certainly glad that was the decision you made. And uh, mm. you've uh, uh, really created some, uh, some new programs, some new initiatives, mm. new vision yeah. uh, in your time there at Anderson. We want to talk about that when the Business yeah. and Beyond podcast returns. Stay with us. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. All rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week is the president of Anderson University, John Pistol, former administrator, the uh, TSA, also deputy uh, director, formerly of the FBI, but has been now for, uh, I guess, what, nine years, John? Yeah, nine years. March 1 will be nine years. Hard to believe. That is. That is. Well, we'll, we'll talk about being a university president. I mean, uh Obviously, it was something you were very excited about. Your connection to Anderson University, I'm sure, played played a part of that as well. But has being a university president been what you expected it to be? Oh, well, the easy answer on that is no. <laughs> it's, or, or maybe another way of saying that, it's been everything I expected and more. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, the challenges and the opportunities of being a small, um, and, and we're a Christian university, so there's some other aspects to that where we're trying to live out a mission and equip our students for a life of faith and service in whatever their calling is. We don't require our students to be Christ followers when they come there, but we hope that we will uh, share with them the good news of where they can feel led to serve others uh, through their their gifts and their talents and abilities. And so, yeah, I've been very fortunate, I think, in terms of being able to bring some of the things from my 
31 years of government experience, as you mentioned, FBI and TSA. So we started uh, two new majors uh, within a year of, of my arrival, uh, one in national security, another one in cybersecurity. And there's a lot of different aspects of that. Um, and one of the things I've been excited about is our creation of a, a Center for Security Studies in Cyber Defense. And that was uh, enabled by a generous grant from, from Lilly Endowment. And that uh, we're in our the start of our third year of that, where we created a center where we are training and equipping students who are majoring in cybersecurity to go out and do audits and cybersecurity assessments, if you will, of not-for-profits and uh, small businesses and some government entities uh, as appropriate at a low or no cost. Um, and so our students are getting good practical experience. The businesses and the government agencies and not-for-profits are getting a service at a reduced cost. And so it just it's a good way of us living out our mission of doing things in a way that is very practical, helpful, and maybe transformational. So, yeah. And, and I've got to believe, uh, you know, you talk about experiential learning and, and the students mm-hmm. getting that hands-on experience. That's that's a great example. But also, you know, you, you know connecting students with real-life opportunities. It would seem that Anderson right. has created a real niche in those areas, uh, and that'd be a real selling point to attract students. Yeah, that's right, Gary. And it's one of the things that we're really uh, pleased with and uh, I'll, I'll say proud of uh, is last summer, after a six-year process, we received our designation by the government, U.S. government, uh, as a Center for Academic Excellence, a CAE in cyber defense. And the reason that's important and distinctive for us is we're only the second small Christian university in the country. Wow. Not just the, not the state. We're the only small Christian school in the state to receive it. Uh, but there's a small school in Western North Carolina uh, that received it several years ago, and they actually got the support of the state legislature and the governor to put money into building out their model on cybersecurity uh, across the state of North Carolina. And so we're working with in here in Indiana, working with with Chris Lowry, the commissioner of higher ed. He's you know so supportive. He's actually an Anderson guy. Grew up in Anderson. Oh, I didn't know state. that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some. I'm a few years ahead of him in school and everything. But yeah. So he knows Anderson and knows the challenges it went through with the loss of all those General Motors jobs yeah, over the sure. last thirty years, and the importance of cybersecurity because this designation, the CAE Center for Academic Excellence, is is granted, awarded, if you will, uh, based on strict criteria that involves uh, having a cybersecurity major with graduates of the program who have uh, got jobs in cybersecurity. So that's it's at least a four, five, six-year process. And as part of that process, we NSA told us that there are approximately 9,000 cybersecurity jobs open in the state of Indiana. I thought they were going to say the Midwest or, you know, in the state of Indiana. And, that, and that's between the private sector, like a CISO, you know, chief information security officer, or in the federal government, some state government, but almost all federal government in some of the classified contracts. And what some of the big schools in terms of their their designations as an R1, a research institution, where people have to have security clearances because they're working on government contracts. 
and there's almost 9,000 jobs open. So what, what we are trying to do is create a pipeline of talent in a, an area that is sorely needed because as many of your listeners, I would say virtually all of your listeners have either experienced some, some hack uh, or mm-hmm. ransomware attack, or they know somebody who has. And the cost of that is not, a, I mean, the inconvenience is terrible, but the actual cost of trying to deal with those uh, is significant. And and so people need to have cybersecurity insurance just to uh, make sure that if, especially if it's a ransomware. So that's what we're trying to do is provide, uh, and not just a, a coding certificate or degree. Those are important. I don't mean to minimize those, but what we're doing is providing a, a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity that is holistic in terms of, yeah, you're knowing, you know what the, you have the technical skills, but you're also going beyond, uh, so you know the value of hard work professionals and integrity and, uh, and applying that in a way that you can, you, you'll learn new things every day on the job. So that's part of it. Just so the, this, is, this is, yeah, this is a program that's obviously been very successful, uh, successful at Anderson, but it would seem to me tremendous opportunity to, to grow it and continue to, to yeah. enhance it. Right. Yeah. And that's what we're talking with Chris Lowry and uh, talked with governor Holcomb uh, last year about it. And so, yeah, hoping that there'll be some state funding that would come through that will help us not only retain Indiana high school students in the state who want that education, but attract students from outside the state. And then if they work in our center for security studies and cyber defense, their their work uh, and internships will well every one of our cybersecurity majors has had a job offer of course before they they graduated and most of them for the companies they did internships for yeah and so it's just a way of attracting talent to Indiana and retaining that talent in a way that makes a difference so we want Anderson University to to, to be a hub uh, working with Purdue and and I yep. you know all the big ones, but from a private school perspective, because we, we don't want to crank out an Edward Snowden who had great technical skills, yeah. but I would say lacked the integrity when he took the oath of office to yeah. uphold the constitution against all enemies for and domestic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not enough to have the technical skills. You need to yeah. have that integrity and when you take an oath of office, it means something. Yeah. And it would seem that, you know, as you look at the business of higher education, uh, a lot has is, is, is been said about the challenges facing, uh, especially small liberal arts colleges from a, just a, a business standpoint, Right, looking for ways to be attractive to students. It would seem that th- this this niche is something that, that would be extremely attractive in, and again, mm-hmm. filling a pipeline and with the, uh, you know, the Christian based uh, background that's presented at yeah. Anderson, kind of a, a, a you know, holistic package, if you will. Yeah, that's right. And, and we've been fortunate. Uh, I was fortunate to work with some some great folks in the government during my time and and invited them to come to campus. Um, we had the FBI director and the TSA administrator last spring come to campus. And what, one of the great things, Yuri, about having current government officials is they can't charge a speaker's fee or travel. It's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. We, we have a national security a distinguished lecture series program. And uh, two of the people uh, have extensive backgrounds in cybersecurity, including Chris Inglis, who was the uh, the deputy director of NSA when I was deputy director of the FBI, and then became the first cybersecurity czar for the White House. Um, and he came to campus and he said, what 
what they are looking for at NSA and in the private sector are people with uh, really three or four things. One, good cybersecurity skills, but they will teach them the latest threats and all these breaches, all these things. So good skills, uh, good oral written communication skills. So it's not just a matter of doing X's and O's on a, on a, on a computer and then uh, collegiality, being able to work with others and integrity. And I said, Chris, you're describing a National University cybersecurity grad there. There you go. They said, well, bring them on. And we're also working with General Isles, International, Indian National Guard to be a pipeline for them as they look, you know, that, that hunt for that search for talent. Uh, yep. And so we hope to fill that, that pipeline, as I mentioned. Well, John Pistol, you, uh, have been a, a great addition to the academic uh, roster, if you will, in the state of Indiana mm-hmm. as head of Anderson University. And uh, also want to uh, thank you for your service to the country because yeah. uh, uh, amazing you. service at a very important time as well. It's been great to catch up with you and I look forward to seeing you soon. That sounds good, Gary. Thank you for your hospitality and for what you do about uh, sharing good stories uh, uh, around the around the state. So be well. All right. Thank you very much. John Pistol, the president at Anderson University. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, uh, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download every episode. Also get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.